Hello and welcome to episode 20 of the 5 By, your source of bi-weekly rapid fireball game reviews and a proud member of the Inside Voices podcast network. This week Ruth leads us down the garden path with Avenue and Stephanie's appraising splendor. I'm talking about Valeria Card Kingdoms, Mason's got an axe to grind with Caverna, and Mike is bringing the chills with Spookies. So sit back, get a cuppa and enjoy the show. Five by listeners, it's Ruth here, and today I'm talking to you about Avenue from Reporter Games. Designed by Elif Svensson and Christian Admanson Otsby, and illustrated by German Bone, Avenue is a quick playing 2016 release that features what could be called a flip and write mechanic. Unlike a roll and write game where players mark actions in a sheet based upon die rolls, Avenue features card flips to provide results that, while still randomized, have a degree of control you just couldn't get from dice. Players are attempting to draw roads connecting farms to grapes in order to bring in the best harvest. In addition, there are two castles, one pink and one green, that will provide endgame points for being connected to grapes, but only for those grapes whose color matches the castle in question. The game plays over five rounds, and at the beginning of each round, a card is flipped over from the farm cards to show which of the six farms will be scored at the end of the round. The players then start flipping cards from the roads deck. Each card in this deck shows one of six possible road types and has either a yellow or grey background. All players must draw the road shown on the card without rotating or flipping its orientation before the next card is revealed. And as roads can't cross each other, they'll have to think carefully about where they're drawing their paths. And well, most of the time players must draw the road. Once per round, each player can choose to pass on drawing this section and instead peek at the farm card for the next round gaining valuable information allowing them to plan for the future. Cards will be flipped in this way until a fourth yellow background card is flipped. Once players have drawn this last segment of road as shown on the card, the round ends and the farm in question scores one point per grape it's connected to. Potentially. You see, the thing I find most interesting about the end of round scoring in Avenue is that if the farm being scored is worth less than or equal to the previous round's farm score, then it instead scores nothing and farms that weren't worth anything during their scoring round will provide negative endgame points. The only halfway good thing about getting a zero-scoring farm is that it will reset your score, meaning that your next farm will score even if it's just connected to a single grape by its road. The requirement to outdo previous rounds means that scoring big on an early farm can actually be detrimental in the long run, and it keeps the game interesting for everyone, as one player scoring really well in round one doesn't mean they're going to run away with the game. Once a farm has been scored, the used cards will be discarded, the new farm flips over, and the next round begins. After five rounds, all but one farm will have been scored, and the players then figure out how many of the correctly colored grapes they manage to connect to each of their castles, take a point for each of those, take a negative five-point penalty for each farm they had that failed to score, and then add up the rest of their end-of-round points and add them to these in order to declare a winner. Because of the simultaneous nature of the gameplay, there's very little downtime in Avenue. Unless one player takes forever to decide where to draw, everyone's usually ready for the next card at around the same time. This means that Avenue scales beautifully. The game box states that it can play anywhere from 1 to 10 players. And honestly, if you had enough sheets, and a good way to handle the peaking mechanic, you could easily play with an even larger group at a convention or perhaps in a classroom. This is especially true as players don't have to see the revealed cards up close. The icons are large and easily seen, and to make things easier in terms of figuring out orientations, the bottom of every player sheet has all six road options illustrated with a corresponding number that also appears on the cards. 
This tricky flip-and-write game was recently re-implemented under the title of Kokoro, Avenue of the Kodama. This is set in the same world as Kodama, which Stephanie talked about in Episode 7, and this version uses the same gameplay as Avenue, but has players drawing routes through a forest connecting offerings to sanctuaries and the forest guardians. Kokoro also adds in Dry Array's player boards, the option of variable maps as each has a different layout on its back, and also decree cards that add in extra scoring or pathing options to the game. I haven't played this version of the game, so I can't speak much to what it adds, but I will say that while the idea of the Dry Erase boards are nice, they do limit the game to 8 players, unless you make extra copies. I don't know that the new components and options in Kakura are worth waiting on also, as it's currently only available as a pre-order. But if you are interested in checking out the quick-playing, route-building gameplay of Avenue, then you should know that there are other options available. Myself, I'm happy connecting farms to grapes for now, but that doesn't mean I would turn down an opportunity to see just what the decrees in Kokoro have to add. And no matter which version you end up with, what you will get is a super fun 20-30 minute game that can handle most groups with ease. And it's for these reasons that Avenue is a game I can see myself pulling out for years to come. And therefore, I highly recommend checking out if you're interested in roller flippin' rights. So until next time, I'm off to prep for my D&D game, but you can find me on sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. As I grow older, I'm getting less and less worried about the new, and I'm realizing that there's a reason that popular things are popular. That Taylor Swift kid has some catchy tunes. And I totally believe you when you say those Fast and Furious movies are really fun. I get it. But I wrestled a bit when deciding on why I wanted to review Splendor. I mean, does this game really need someone else to talk about it? Why not start this review with, Hey guys, so have you heard about this game Ticket to Ride? But the more I wavered, the more I realized why I wanted to review this game. See, sometimes something is so simple and so good, and we all like it, but then it gets taken for granted. Well, I'm coming forth to say I will never take Splendor for granted. Released in 2014, designed by Mark andre and published by Space Cowboys, Splendor is a simple economic engine-building game. For those who haven't played it, here's how the game works. You are a wealthy jewel merchant during the Renaissance, and you leverage your resources to create the best gemstone business. You grow your gem empire by buying mines, earning you more gems, which you can spend to have more mines. And maybe along the way you'll impress a noble or two, earning you even more points to help you to your goal. On your turn, you can choose to collect gems. You could buy and build a card, or lastly, you can choose to reserve a card. If you collect gems, you take either three different colors of chips, or two of the same color. Your choice. If you choose to buy and build a card, you pay its price with your stash of gems, and place it in front of you. If you've chosen to reserve a card, simply take it and place it in front of you face down. Sure, you kind of haven't done much on that turn, but you do get a wild color gem to use for a later build if there are still some available. Plus, it's a nice way to really stick it to your opponent by blocking their ability to purchase a card that could easily work in their favor. As you buy and build cards, 
you get to use their intrinsic gem bonus on later card builds. Some cards will also give you victory points, moving you ever closer to the 15 points needed to win the game. Each game, three cards representing some influential nobles are made available. They have some very specific and often hard-to-reach requirements, but if you manage to meet their objectives, some serious victory points are headed your way. That's the long and short of it. When I described it as simple, I wasn't kidding. But that's part of the charm. First, I can open the box and be playing in two minutes, five minutes if I need to teach it to someone. It's one of the few games that I can play with an older child and not feel like I'm playing a kid's game. It comes in a standard game box, but I can easily throw everything in a Ziploc bag and take it with me. And while I don't mind a bit of luck in my games, this game is 100% luck-free. There's some good replayability in Splendor, since the layout of the available cards is always random. Sure, it's weak on theme. The artwork is nice, but it feels a bit samey. But that's not why I like this game. And that's weird for me to say, since longtime listeners will know how much I love art and a strong theme. That should speak to how well-designed the gameplay is. I love this game in spite of the lack of my usual trappings. Splendor plays two to four players, and it plays well at all counts, although I do like it best at two or three, especially when I have someone at the table who tends to suffer from a touch of AP. I have yet to play this with the expansion released in 2017, but I'm eager to add a new element to an already great game like this. Splendor retails for about $40, which is honestly a bit more than I'd expect to pay for a game of this weight. But with how easy it is to play with new people and how frequently we get it to the table, it's been totally worth it. So if Splendor has been sitting on your shelf for a while, give it some love. If you've never played it, Ask one of your board game buddies to play. I'm sure someone has a copy. Sometimes the mainstays are worth a second look. For the 5 by, I'm Stephanie Stone-Rob, and until next time, stay playful. Hello, it's Lindsay here, and this episode I'm going to be telling you about one rather fond of Valeria Card Kingdoms. This is a tableau building card and dice game published by Daily Magic Games. It is designed by Zaius Velio with artwork by Milo Dimitrievsky. This is a 1-5 to play game that lasts for around 30-45 to minutes. Valeria was released in 2016, and several expansion packs and promo decks followed, some of which play alone or can be integrated with the base game. As many listeners may know at this point, I love my card games. I very much enjoy building card games, and I love when there is lots of nice things to be gained. So it's no surprise that I really enjoy Valeria. The game begins with a huge central marketplace of domains, characters, and monsters. Armed with your starter cards, a few resources, and your juke, which details two bonuses you could receive at the end of the game, you roll two chunky marble dice on your turn. You use the value of the dice and the dice value total to activate cards of the corresponding value. The player whose turn it is will usually get a number of resources that are detailed on the cards and other players will get a runner-up prize, if you will, which is like a smaller quantity of resources. You can then spend two actions, pick up a resource or buy a character, get a domain card or slay a monster, but you always need the correct amount of resources to do so. You can spend the magic tokens as a substitute for any other resource as long as you have one of the primary resources required. The game ends when the monster decks are empty or the domain cards run out. You get points for all cards with the purple victory shield, 
the actual VP tokens and for your Duke's bonuses. As somebody who has played a lot of card games and deck building games, this was really easy to get to grips with immediately and just get going with. It's very light and not too thinky, but it's just like good solid fun. Valeria is like when you want to play a game that looks epic and busy, but without hurting your brain in the process. I've said many, many times before that as a parent who has a brief window of time to play games before lapsing into I don't care about anything but sleep territory, you need those games that are going to play fairly quickly or not require a huge amount of brain power, or both. I know I say it a lot to the point where you're probably fed up with hearing it, but if you need to get a tabletop fix, but don't feel that you have it in you to play epic or heavy game constantly, then games like Valeria are great to have in your collection. It's a bit fussy to set up, as are most games with lots and lots of cards. Once you get going, you're away. It may not require a huge amount of brain power, but it's by no means mindless and you do have to be constantly alert. This is actually one of the reasons I enjoy the game so much, because even when it's not your turn, there's always something to do. And as you build up your tableau, there is always something to gain. You can be strategic if you like and buy certain cards or kill specific monsters. And with your Duke cards, you have different bonuses to aim towards. So you may want to accumulate one resource more than another or collect specific types of cards. But you can always just go down the route of buying lots of different characters and killing a lot of monsters. For me, this isn't the kind of game where I'm terribly concerned with winning. I just like to improve my score from the last game and generally have some card getting monster slaying fun. I love games that give you a nice sense of gain and satisfaction and that's in abundance with Valeria. As I mentioned, you are guaranteed to get a resource of some description every single turn and save up a bunch of magic to use in order to make killing the more expensive monsters more possible. I like that you can use the magic tokens to pay for actions as long as you have a coin or strength token as well. So it never feels like you're striving too hard to get what you want and you're never stuck for an action to take. As a fairly experienced game, you think that I'd tire of this game easily because it's not terribly challenging or taxing and that's why I'm not playing it week in week out as it could possibly become a little stale. As I said, sometimes I just need games like this in my life. Good news is they have expansions that bring new factions which are very different from one another so you could definitely give the game a refresh if needed. I actually have the Frost and Flames expansion which introduces a whole bunch of icy domains and weird fiery creatures but I'm still at the point where I'm enjoying the base game and haven't felt the need for the new just yet. Valera is definitely a table hog. This is a pretty big game with rows of columns of central cards and each player has their own tableau that builds up so it grows ludicrously big and before you know it you're struggling for space. So you need one big ass table or to play on a giant expanse of floor for this game and it's definitely not one you can bring anywhere and play. I would actually love to play some more people just to see how crazy it gets. I also love the artwork in Valeria. It's a crazy mashup of fantasy artwork with the usual goblins and orcs and skeletons, but it's so beautifully vivid. There's nothing remotely murky about this fantasy world. It's lush and full of gorgeous colour, manages to be child-friendly without being childish, which is wonderful, as I can imagine kids playing this game and really enjoying it, but there's nothing too gruesome, no horribly cliché gender depictions, it's very modern, lovingly detailed and very cool, and I absolutely adore it. So if you're anything like me, and you'll probably enjoy Valeria, if you like tableau building games, chucking big old dice, tying up numbers and grabbing a bunch of stuff. If you're in the mood to kill the monsters and get all the cards, this is probably going to be up your street. And if you're having an evening where you want to game but you feel your brain could combust, this is one to help you with those feels. I've really enjoyed Valeria, the base game, and I'm looking forward to playing more and exploring the expansions. If you want to see and hear more from me, you can visit me on my Instagram and YouTube channel, Shiny Happy Meeples. Or pop on my blog, www.shinyhappymeeplesblog.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter, capital S, capital H, Meeples. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Caverna, the cave farmers. 
Worker placement games are my favorite. Agricola was one of the very early hobby games we owned, and Megan and I have played it dozens of times. So it was with great anticipation several years ago that Megan bought me Caverna for my birthday. People were loudly proclaiming that Caverna was not only the sequel to Agricola, but was in fact better than Agricola. Is that true? I don't know, but it's very different even though the two games share a lot of their core DNA. Published by Lookout Spiel in 2013, six years after Agricola, it still has the friendly Clemens Franz artwork, but you're going to want to print player aids because there is a lot going on here. In both games, you're placing your family members in spots on the board to get resources and take actions, trying to build up your personal homestead, both to survive and then later thrive over a set number of rounds. Caverna adds mining since you live in caves, as well as weapons making and a little bit of abstracted adventuring. I suppose since you're dwarves... The dwarven aspect of Caverna confuses me a little, but I fully admit to not knowing much about fantasy races and little to nothing about dwarves. Just yesterday, I had to get Mike to explain the difference between elves and goblins, if that tells you anything. Like most good worker placement games, there are a lot of different things you can do in Caverna. You can gather wood, you can excavate your caves, you can mine ore and rubies, you can burn the forest to plow fields, you can plant your crops in those fields, you can build pastures for your animals to live in, and you can outfit your cave home with all kinds of different rooms that give you special powers or score you points. Every round a new action is turned over, and in that way information is doled out slowly over the course of the game. The room and furnishing tiles, however, are all available for purchase right at the start, and I find that somewhat overwhelming. It's just too much information for me, and I have a really hard time processing it. There are a lot of different room tiles in Caverna, each of which becomes a branching decision tree about what to buy, what resources to acquire in order to buy them, and ultimately what strategy to pursue using them in combination. Because of this, Caverna has more of an open-world sandbox feeling than some of Rosenberg's more restrictive games like Agricola or Le Havre. Some people really like that Caverna is less punishing than Agricola in that it's a little easier to get resources and you're not as close to starving in the first few rounds. At the same time, it does sap some of the tension from the worker placement aspect. In Caverna, it's very easy to convert resources to food, and you can use an action to take the available rubies which act as wildcard resources. Caverna also adds a weapons-making and adventuring action, which honestly is not quite as exciting as it sounds. There's another, yes, another, path to victory in getting a bunch of ore, putting weapons tokens on your workers, and then sending them out to, I would assume, loot and pillage the countryside for resources. It sort of feels like getting free stuff, but there's really a lot of work that goes into the build-up to it. For the most part, I play Caverna solo, and as a solitaire game, I found it to be much more satisfying than Agricola. In a solo game, I'm not looking for the tension of blocking and resource denial. I want to work on building efficiency engines in a set number of turns. But even playing solo, I have to limit the number of available room tiles to build because I just can't process looking at them all at once. There are a lot of different ways you could do this, but I usually just pick half or a third of each of the different kind of rooms and put the rest back in the box. As a solo game, Caverna is relaxing, enjoyable, quick enough that you can play a couple of games back to back in an evening. That's not to say I don't enjoy it with more people, but Agricola is still my choice for multiplayer tension. I do have a number of complaints about the box, of course. Caverna comes in a giant box, but it's for a reason, but that reason is stupid. Caverna, out of the box, is playable by up to seven people, which means that there are seven players worth of resources inside this giant ass box. I'm going to preface this by saying that the following is solely my personal opinion and does not reflect the opinions of the 5 by or the Inside Voices Network or any of its contributors, but I think it's stupid for a game of this size and weight to be played by seven people. That may not be your experience. You may regularly play this game with seven people. If so, please write in and tell me that I'm wrong. But I suspect that the vast majority of Caverna owners will never play with more than five. Even though this box is already giant, because I had to use two planos to organize all the stuff in it, I can't fit more than two player boards and still have it close. I'm very strongly opposed to boxes not closing, in case you didn't know. 
Caverna is very, very expensive compared to other games like it. 50% more than Agricola and 30% more than Lahav. This is largely because it has so many extra resources and tiles for the extra player count. My personal preference would have been for those extras to be available via a set of punch boards that you could order from the publisher, but I may be in the minority on that opinion. Do please write in and let me know your thoughts. I really like Caverna, but given its $90 MSRP, I wouldn't urge you to rush right out and buy it. I think it's definitely a try before you buy, especially if you haven't played other Uwe Rosenberg worker placement games. So who should buy Caverna? People who like worker placement games. People who like open-world resource-building sandbox games. People who like Agricola, but wish it was a little bit looser and more forgiving. People who don't mind dropping a load of cash on a flagship euro. And people who are capable of lifting a 10-pound box up onto a game shelf. I give Caverna 10 out of 10 dogs that I forgot to mention you can get during the game that are cool coyote-looking meeples that just hang out on your board and give you points at the end. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter at Mason A. Weaver. Every October, while friends start their horror movie lists, I secretly want nothing more than to sit down on the sofa with the kids and binge some old original Scooby-Doo Where Are You mysteries. My personal belief being that the classics should be introduced early and often. Maybe this is why my whole family likes the Haba game Spookies. Spookies is a push-your-luck game about exploring a haunted house, but as a hobby game, it is squarely aimed at kids, specifically 8+, but my son started playing with us at 5. But more on that later. The art is dark but cute, and the kids exploring the house would fit right in with Scooby and the gang, or really any kid's book. Michael Menzel really hit that perfect things-aren't-quite-right, but not-too-scary-for-little-kids motif. The primary game mechanism by Stefan Kloss is a pretty simple push-your-luck element. There are seven levels to the haunted house. Going up, you pass through each level one at a time, rolling dice to try and match or exceed the number shown for each level, with the number you need to reach increasing for each higher level. Were this all there was to the game, I imagine it would likely be pretty boring. As the dice are six-sided, knowing that each die rolls an average of 3.5 makes it pretty easy as an adult to know when you should add another dice to the pool. If I'm trying to reach a value of 8, rolling two dice has a slight risk to it, but overall should work out. But there are two other mechanisms that help turn this more into an actual game. The first are the Spookies chits. Each chit is placed face down and has a number under it from 1 to 5. These are your points. Each time you succeed in moving up a level, you gain the number of spookies shown for that level and the number of dice you rolled. Each higher level gains you more spookies, so you definitely want to keep going as high as you can. But as you add more dice to the pool, making it more likely you'll succeed with those higher numbers, well, then you get fewer spookies for that success. The game is that balance of continuing to move forward versus the return on investment for rolling a lot or a few dice. If you fail to reach the required number for a level, then you fall back down to whatever level you can reach for that roll, placing one of your face-down spooky chits on each level you fall past. It's pretty harsh losing those points, especially for kids. Even more harsh is knowing that the next player to reach that level gets any spookies that were left behind by previously falling players. There's a lot of finger-crossing after you fall, hoping, usually futilely, that no one else will get those chits you were forced to leave behind. The last bit of randomness in Spookies that helps keep a more experienced adult from running away with this kid's game is that no one controls any one character. At the start of your turn, you roll a die to see which character you'll be using that round. 
This means that the character that you ran up to the top last round and is now poised to pull in a lot of spooky chits may now be used by your opponent while you have to take a character who's back down at the start. So what makes this a good kids game? The theme is fun and engaging. It really fits the push your luck style of how far are you able to go into that haunted house before your nerves break and you run back out. The push your luck mechanism is pretty simple and easy to explain to a kid. Watching your character methodically progress through the house is easy for kids to understand, and that instant reward of gaining spookies with each advancement is a good draw for them. The, frankly, only minor downsides we've hit with our kids are, first, that managing when you should add a die to your die pool is a touch beyond my six-year-old sometimes. But as the age range on this game is 8+, this may be a skill he'll get better at by then. Though, to be fair, he is significantly more lucky with the dice than I am, and usually makes the roll anyway. And while the spookies themselves help even out the scores through point randomness, it's pretty easy to figure out who has the most spookies for a clear person in the lead. Sure, they don't always win because of the point distribution on the spookies, but that's rare. And while as a parent I can point out that you never know, it can get a little disheartening for a kid to see themselves so behind. Lastly, it did take a few plays for my kids to get that you aren't just choosing your character and playing them each time, but that's a good gaming skill to have. Really, those are all minor niggles. Spookies really is a fun, engaging, simple game for kids that my wife and I also enjoy playing with them, and it fits the fall Halloween theme perfectly. Though, my kids are willing to ignore that theme season tie-in and request playing it year-round. So that's Spookies. If you'd like to discuss it further, or how I'm a complete stick in the mud because I don't actually believe in ghosts, you can reach me on Twitter at Mike Risley. Thanks for listening to The 5 by If you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at 5 by Games or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. You can listen to The 5 by on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, and don't forget your five-star reviews. Or you can follow all of our links at 5 bygamescom the 5 by is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.